Friends, colleagues, and the overwhelmingly stressed, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Dr. Alexander Crosswell from the University of California, San Francisco. Alexander, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to come down and chat with us. We're really excited. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, let's get straight to it. Why don't you tell us, Alexander, maybe just a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and kind of like what you do. Great. So I'm Alexander Crosswell, and I'm an assistant professor at UCSF in the School of Medicine. I have my PhD in health psychology. Uh, I got that from UCLA in 2014. And my research field is really the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which is a huge word that I usually use to just impress people. Um, But it's the mind-body connection. It's trying to really understand how is it possible that the mind and body are connected to the level that it influences our health and well-being over our entire lifespan. And my research in particular focuses on how stress influences your biological functioning. So this this is really interesting because I think we talk about this as like just culturally it's a phenomenon to talk about stress and just refer to everything as stress um so so let's hear from uh you know a professional and a researcher on stress what is stress how do we define it there's so many ways we can define stress so i'm I'm interested in kind of diving into this with you okay it's such an important question what do we mean by stress (laughs) i write about this all the time primarily because i just ended five years of being the executive director of the Stress Measurement Network, which was funded by the National Institute on Aging. And that it was funded because there's such a need to have better specificity around what we're talking about in research when we're talking about stress. And so the point of our network that just got funded for another five years is to continue to try and refine the definitions and the descriptions and the measurement around this really nebulous term. The way that I describe stress, and many researchers in the field, we describe it as a large construct that encompasses the processes related to responding to something that is pushing your physiological or psychological boundaries in some way, and that you have to then alter your behavior to respond to, and that people perceive that they are stressed when their ability to cope with the situation at hand is less or you have less coping abilities than the situation presents. So that's a very complicated description of stress because it's a complicated (laughs) term. Yeah, it's very it's it's very interesting how it, it is complicated, but everybody seems to think that stress is such a simple thing, <laughs> right? It's like you're you're clearly stressed, but this stress could be coming from so many different facets in your life, uh, and it could be you know very different in its, in its time scale and how how long its impact will last. Yeah, when we start to talk about it, you know, one of the primary ways that we first differentiate between um, the different types of stress is exactly as you said, which is the time scale. So one type of stress is an acute stressor, something that's happening right now in the moment where there's a beginning and an end, like getting in an argument with somebody, where you can feel that you have that stress arousal, both psychologically and physiologically. And we call that an acute stressor. Then there's what my research tends to focus on, which are chronically stressful environments or chronic stressors. And my work right now focuses on caregivers Um, who are caregiving for a family member that has a disability or illness. So my work right now is looking at caregivers of family members who have Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And one of the caregivers I was interviewing for a study, when I asked her, well, how many hours a day do you think that you're caregiving? 
she said, well, what's 24 hours times seven days a week? What's 24 <laughs> times seven? And I said, well, you know, I mean, you sleep and there's a little, you know, and she said, no, I, I am caregiving even in my sleep because my father, who I'm taking care of, he wakes up in the night and will try to leave the house and wander into the street in the middle mm -hmm. of the night. So I always have to be on high alert. And so that's what we would consider a chronic stressor where you're in a situation where it's going on for long periods of time. And then finally, another type of stressor, and there, there's many more, but I'm just giving you the three, the three basic ones. The other one is a, um, a stressful event. I'm pausing because there's actually four. <laughs> yeah. Stressful life events like the death of a loved one or a cancer diagnosis, an event-based measure. And then the fourth one that I almost forgot are daily level stressors. So these are like my minor stressors in your daily life that are frustrating and annoying. So Alexander, we've got these four different kinds of stressors and obviously, um, you know, we try and work to understand them in isolation. Um, is it appropriate to rank them? Like, or is one type worse for our long-term health than a different type or are they all sort of equally mm. poor? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. They're all definitely interrelated. So if you think about how you cope after having, let's say, a stressful mm -hmm. life event, like death of a loved one, uh, maybe your you know, metaphorical bucket is already full with having to cope with all your negative emotions of that, of that grief process. So then you end up having more daily stressors because you, you have fewer resources to cope. Right. So they're all very interrelated. Um, and so it's hard to identify, you know, oh, you're just somebody who has this type and no other types. They're all very connected. Yeah, sure. But in terms of the toxicity for our, and I tend to study physical health as my primary outcome, it really is seeming like experiencing high levels of long lasting chronic stress is what really wears down mm -hmm. your body. And so one important point I try to make when I talk about chronic stress is that Chronic, being under chronic stress means that you both have something going on in your life that people would say is objectively difficult and challenging, and you also perceive it to be challenging. Right. So why, why I want to explain that is because oftentimes when I tell people that I study stress, like just normal people, I'm at a cocktail party and they say, hey, you know, I study stress. They all say to me the same thing. They say, oh, I should be one of your research <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, you really shouldn't, because here you are at this nice cocktail party, like having a beer, like good. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't be happy sometimes if you're under chronic stress. But really, the people who are under the levels of chronic stress that we're studying in the research lab are unable to be at that cocktail party because of their life circumstances, like the caregiving example that I gave you earlier. So by kind of this toxic level of chronic stress, what I mean is you have this objective experience that other people would say is really difficult and challenging, like you're the primary caregiver for your father who has Alzheimer's disease and there's nobody to relieve you. So you're caregiving 24 seven, as that research participant once told me. And secondarily, you also perceive it to be very difficult. Right. And why this is important is because this is the psychological scientist aspect that we bring in. So it's not just about the exposure which would in the caregiving example would mean anybody who is a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's disease is experiencing toxic stress. Well, that as psychologists is not what we believe. We believe it's also about your individual response or perception of the experience. And so to be considered being under chronic toxic stress, you also have to report that it's really psychologically and physically challenging for you to be in mm. that. 
So there's some really interesting work in the Alzheimer's caregiving literature, for example, suggesting that not all Alzheimer's caregivers have negative outcomes. But if you're an Alzheimer's caregiver and you report high levels of perceived stress from caregiving, you're the one who's at greater risk for worse health and worse psychological well-being. So it's this coupling together of like, yes, you're exposed to something, like you are caregiving, and you find it to be challenging. Whereas there's some caregivers who find it really rewarding and meaningful, and there might be cultural differences around the meaning that we place on caregiving or that. Right, right. So there's a lot of nuance in terms of what we really describe as toxic stress. I think one of the classic uh, classic phrases when it comes to stress is you, you, you might tell somebody that they're make, making a mountain out of a molehill, right? It, mm-hmm. it, to me, that kind of mm-hmm. scene, this fits nicely with this idea of perception and how their ability to cope and to deal with the sort of toxic stress levels might be different relative to everything else going on to, for them and how they perceive that event. Is that kind of an appropriate understanding of it? Yeah, and I think it's a huge question in the field of, it's not about how much can we trust perception of your environment, but it's really about how do we capture and measure your experience of your current environment in a way that we can capture the level of perceived stress that you may be experiencing. So for example, one really interesting and confusing finding that we've had in the field is that low income minority adults report low levels of perceived stress. Well, okay, well, what is perceived stress? Perceived stress is um, how, it's basically how overwhelmed do you feel right now by your current life circumstances? Now, this is confusing that they would report low levels of stress because objectively they have higher levels of stress. They have fewer, you know, they have um, fewer resources in their communities. They have less access to healthcare. They end up with higher rates of diseases. Uh, And so we would think objectively, no, your life does look harder if you have less money and you're discriminated against in, in the United States at least. But yet they report lower levels than wealthy white Americans on this perceived stress scale. And so one of the kind of questions that we've been working with in the stress measurement network is asking when you're, when you're reading a question about how stressed are you, what is the comparison group you're using? What is the benchmark that you're basing your answer off of? And so maybe one of the reasons that our perceived stress measures could be improved is because we need to have people grounding their, um, Kyle, I don't know what the word is, but grounding you know, their cognitive perce- perception yeah. in something before they then evaluate their current circumstances around it. I mean, as a cognitive scientist, I feel like you could provide some insert, insight. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I think, I think you bring up a really good point, this idea that they need to be, we need to have sort of the relative measure. And so... Um, I sort of am thinking like social comparison and I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the word right now that you were searching for and I'm not able to find it. But uh, yeah, that idea that sort of, um, I keep wanting to say cognitive dissonance, but yeah, like, like anchoring. anchoring, it's anchoring. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So it's a form of anchoring, right? So we need to know, hey, um, you know, is my stress relative to a rich, you know, uh, rich white American or is my stress relative to um, somebody who's in the same social uh, social class and community as I am in? Um, and how might that dictate or differentiate the way in which I'm reporting stress? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you comparing to people that are uh, around you or are you comparing to a group that might be less, less advan- have less advantages? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all about your relative, how you how you are relative to others or the ones that you're comparing to. 
Yeah, I have a question about it. It's something that you said earlier that popped into my brain. Um, can you inoculate yourself to stress? So can these can these groups that are maybe reporting lower levels of stress, despite having objectively more stressful life events, is it? Uh, can you inoculate yourself to it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have two two answers. So the first is that group that I described, we'd like to call them resilient. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that then they end up with higher rates of physical right. disease that are associated with stress. So, you know, I don't know. So so maybe they're they're more resilient. They just are perceive it to be less stressful because you're right. They've been able to cope and deal. But clearly there's some there's some negative payoff that's happening um, on their body. The wear and tear of their body is just is yeah. just greater. Um, but, but there's some research. There's a um, researcher named Nick Rolliter he is doing these studies in the lab to try and look at what's termed stress habituation, which is this idea of there might be a subset of people, um, and maybe it's the majority of people, where when you confront the same acute stressor time and again, you learn coping mechanisms. And so what he's shown is that you can habituate to stressors. So if you bring people into the lab multiple times in a row and have them go through an acute stress paradigm, and what we tend to do in our field is to give make people give an impromptu speech in front of a <laughs> panel of judges that's negatively evaluating you. And what we see <laughs> is that if you do that multiple times in a row, you can habituate. So your body and your mind end up responding less intensely over time, as you might expect, because you get used to that uncomfortable sure, experience. Yeah. Is that the, uh, the Trier right. social stress test? Is that... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I haven't had the uh, I haven't had the misfortune of having to do that, but I have contemplated using it in my research. Um, I just feel like that it's tough yeah, to. I have <laughs> been a participant of one of them, and it was it was quite awful. Yeah. Not fun oh, at all. It's brutal. Uh, <laughs> <No>. All ethically approved. <laughs> all ethically so, approved and above I, board. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, within this, uh, you're talking a lot, Alexandra, about you know this like this idea that you know maybe the perception of it uh, of these individuals isn't necessarily showing these uh, health outcomes or these biological outcomes that kind of like uh, brings up the thought of you know the difference between physiological stress and psychological stress could you kind of talk a little bit about that yeah. like, I, know, I know there's a lot of talk about you know seeing physical yeah. stress or physiological stress and that's kind of like how it was originally conceptualized right oh gosh such a good question okay here's one of the mysteries of our field which is that if you're in a research lab and I have you hooked up to all sorts of equipment, so I'm measuring your heart rate and your blood pressure and other aspects of your autonomic nervous system, and I'm having you spit in a little vial to capture your cortisol, which everyone thinks of as the stress hormone. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so I'm capturing your physiological acute stress response. And I'm also capturing how you feel. So are you feeling angry? Are you feeling frustrated? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling anxious? Then I put you through what we were just talking about, this public, this speech task in front of these negative judges. And I capture your physiological and psychological response to that experience. One of the mysteries of our field is that those two things are not correlated. So you would yeah. think the greater cortisol increase I have, then the greater anger or frustration I feel. Uh, and in fact, most often than not, most studies, those two things are not significantly correlated. Huh. Wow. And so we get this all the time. I know. It's like crazy because people are like, no, it's, it can't be. It can't be that way. Um, and it is. It is that way. And, and so I, we don't know if, you know, there's two different thoughts around that. One is that 
Well, just methodologically, you are capturing two completely different uh, different processes and that they are on two different measurement scales. So trying to think that there's an association between um, the output of cortisol and a scale of zero to four on how how strongly you feel in a certain emotion is just unrealistic. And the second is that those things really just aren't correlated and that your body is responding and your mind is responding and they respond in their own way on their own time scale and their own intensity level. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. I, <laughs> so I, I, so I, weird. I have so many mm-hmm. questions just because I know I'm, stress is just such an interesting topic. But I'm, I mean, I, I'm just going to go randomly and it's, it's going to feel like it's coming from left field, but it's, it's always stress related. Um, what with chronic stress, uh, is there like you talked a little bit about this, this, but like, is there a, a point where it's, it's, it's all cumulative? So like the stress that you experience on a daily basis, we talked about like daily hassles, these major life events uh, and these chronic and acute stressors. What? um I guess my question is, is cumulative stress a thing? So where it's like, you know, if you're having all of these things go wrong, is that going to be way worse than just having, you know, say one chronic stressor? It's a good question. Um, yeah. Um, yes and no. And here's here's why it could actually be a no. Um, cumulative stress, so a greater number of just all these different kinds of stressors may not matter um, as much as potentially when you experience them. So one of the biggest findings from the field is how much experiencing stress in childhood matters. And so it might not be about, oh, if you've had so many stressors in your adulthood, then you have a greater risk of cardiovascular disease. It actually might be instead that if you just had one stressor in childhood, your system is forever changed. Because when you're a kid is when your body is learning about the world around you and your system is developing to be able to handle the environment that you're living in. And so what it looks like from now decades of research studying children who've been who've experienced a variety of different stressors from being abused to growing up in a family that was really um, chaotic where a lot of arguing went on where you didn't feel loved and cared for um, to experiencing and witnessing violence all these range of exposures in childhood seem to be related to very profound physiological changes that unfortunately set you up to be more at risk for diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, uh, high blood pressure for the rest of your life, even if you have a healthy adulthood with with few stressors right. moving forward. That's really interesting. I think it's kind of echoed too in, uh, I mean, just the way that people talk about, uh, specifically like, um, I, I'm going to use like prison ex- as an example, or people that kind of have are criminals. Uh, I find often there's this kind of uh, discussion about what had happened as as a child and, and blaming you know childhood events as the re- as for the reason why they're they're in the situation they are now and right. i find that's it's kind of interesting that that's always what we jump to but it, it does have a grain of truth in it that what does happen what stressors do happen what uh you know life events might happen at an early age this critical period might have an impact on the way that you progress in in your life yeah i think I, yeah, I actually think it's, it is probably pretty profoundly impactful mm-hmm. for people who end up having, you know, anti, anti-social or whatever the, the word mm-hmm. is for, um, kind of ending up in the criminal system. Right. Um, or behave, what I mean is like that have behavioral issues, right. because basically what it is, is that your body is learning and your mind, they're learning about what it means to exist in the world. And so if you grew up in a family where other people respond to you with violence, mm-hmm. 
then that's what you that's how you learn to respond and in fact it actually should be thought of as a very adaptive approach because your number one job is to keep yourself safe right. and alive mm -hmm. yeah so you're doing that in order to keep yourself safe and alive and unfortunately it's it's not adaptive in yeah. the long run yeah yeah it's a, it's a really good point and I, and I want, go ahead sorry go ahead yeah i want to bring up something else that that this makes me think of which is that when we do look at um as a society as a whole what we tend to do when we look at people that end up in a range of different circumstances whether they are end up being you know ha having criminal cases or being overweight yeah, for example we often look and say oh their parents mm -hmm. you know didn't train teach them right or whatever and now being a mom i have three young kids being a mom myself i feel so much <laughs> pressure around it's all about the mother yeah. it's all about the mother and guess what the re the psychology research says yeah it's all about the mother but i think as a field we have forgotten that kids spend most of their time outside of our home in the world at large in society through school through you know extracurricular activities through sports teams just in the community and we have taken such an individualistic approach by saying it's all about the parent and it's all about the kid well it's actually all about society's mm -hmm. behavior and i find that really parallels an, a huge issue right now in the stress field which is that we think stress resilience is it, the responsibility of the individual. And so most of the media outreaches I get is for one of my papers looking at the app Headspace for reducing right. work yeah. stress. Because everyone wants to know if an app using a meditation app for 10 minutes a day can actually decrease levels of work stress. And what I the point that I try to make to everybody who gets in touch with me is that it is not on the responsibility of the employee to reduce the burden of their work. <laughs> yeah. That's it's actually the company's yeah. problem. Because it, we are overburdening our employees. Yeah. They are burnt out. They have too much responsibility. They have too much on their plate for too few resources. Absolutely. And that's the problem. Not that an individual needs to meditate more. And it's actually offensive <laughs> to be saying yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that kind of touches on like the idea that you're talking about is uh I think in a part is like, you know, our appraisals of these stressors, right? If everybody in in these businesses or in these jobs are stressed, it's not just that the one person's appraising things stressful and others aren't. It's a, it's a systemic problem. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. With all that in mind, where do we go from here? Like, what is it that we're working on research-wise? I think research-wise, we're still focused on the individual. And I'll give you two different kind of directions we're going in. So the first is that we are now, have moved on as a field, I believe, from trying to really understand how is it possible that stress, quote unquote, gets under the skin to influence our biology at a cellular level. We now really know many of the different physiological ways that the experiences of your life get down to you at the cellular level. So now what we're focused on is really trying to understand how can we interrupt those, those pathways and those processes so that stress isn't as toxic for your body. And we're also trying to help design interventions that can boost resilience so that you appraise things as less stressful and use different psychological techniques like reappraisal to experience things in a more, more positive light. So I think a lot of the work right now at the individual level is, is focused on developing evidence-based treatments that will boost stress resilience. Yeah. A second line of work that I'm really excited about is this focus on more of the community level resilience. 
and trying to understand what can we do to be building neighborhoods, communities, schools that can help provide another layer of support for children in particular, but and older adults, so really vulnerable populations, to help then boost a lot of the factors that we know are important for stress resilience. And this really means that our field has to extend beyond just psychological scientists into people who are studying things outside of our expertise, like the way cities are designed. So there's a lot of work showing that um, access to spaces where you can see nature, where you can be in nature, where you can walk safely, where you can have lit paths in the evening so that you can actually walk out your door and go somewhere at five o'clock at night in the winter. Um, So design elements that create ways for people to lead healthy, physically and socially connected lives. And I'm excited for our field to to start connecting interdisciplinary in interdisciplinary ways to these other fields that know how to build and design healthy communities. Yeah, that's something that I find really, really fascinating. with the, I see a lot of crossover with the work that I do and, and obviously trying to promote things like being physically active, being physically healthy. Um, but there's so much overlap between all this. And I think what the point that you're getting at is really, really profound, which is that, you know, there is this need to have um, interdisciplinary research ongoing all the time. You know, we, we need to be thinking about ways in which we can mitigate stressors in other ways beyond just simply, um, you know, reducing stress in the in the most basic sense, right? Yeah, besides just telling people to meditate, which is basically... The- <laughs> yeah, maybe not as effective. <laughs> or it is effective, yeah. but, you know. Yeah, and not for everybody. You know, we have to have... And if it works for you, mm-hmm. great. But not everybody is going to develop a 30-minute meditation. Yeah, practice. yeah. So more answers yeah. beyond Especially that. when, as is, time is so precious and limited for so many people. And that's, by and large, one of their ma- major stressors is the fact that they don't have time to do things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Alexandra, I mean, with the last little, like, you know, 10 minutes that we're talking here today, I kind of want to get into, now that we know what stress is, how, how it's being measured and all these different facets of stress, what are things, I mean, are there any predictors of who can manage stress better? Like, are there certain people or certain, you know, personality types that are appraising things as less stressful? I think of often when I think of these examples, I think of, like, you have a group of people that have just experienced, a, you know, something some event, say, say it's a car accident or something like that, and they've all experienced the same thing. How, how can we kind of get at how they respond to it differently? What are the, what are the people that are most likely to respond to it well versus, you know, versus the, their friend that, that's not going to be able to respond to it well? Hmm, that's a big Very question. Big. <laughs> I like that question. There's so many different ways I can take that. Yeah. Um, there's so many different ways I can take it. But let me tell you about some analyses that I'm working on Wonderful. right now um, where – and I haven't published this yet, but I was just working on it this morning. And what 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 I was looking at was is a sample where I have a range of women that are midlife women, some of which are highly stressed because they're caregivers or moms for their children that have a, an autism spectrum disorder. And then age matched moms who have children at the same ages, but that are no- neurotypically developing. Okay. And as you can imagine, within both groups, the control and the high stress group, there's a range of levels of perceived stress. So the moms in the, even in the control group, of course, they also report that parenting is stressful. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's just in a different way than the, yeah, than the moms in the high stress right. group. 
Um, and what we were looking at was really trying to understand what are some of the ways in which they, these moms, regardless of whether they're high stress or not, are kind of resilient to some of the negative effects that stress can have on your physiology. And the finding that I'm really excited about right now is showing that for moms who are reporting high levels of perceived stress, so just that parenting right now is really difficult for me, the ones who have also have high levels of a construct called self-acceptance seem to be the ones who are doing the best physically. Mm. And by doing the best physically, I have this measure of meta uh, metabolic health. It's a measure of insulin right. resistance. So that's the outcome I'm talking yeah. about here. But basically what we see is if you're reporting that you have a high level of stress, but you also report high level of acceptance of yourself and your current circumstances, you don't seem to have the negative physical effects of the stress. Wow. And I think that this is really important because it builds on one of my previous studies that I published in the journal Emotion in 2018 that was showing that people who can accept the moment for what yeah. it is have the best mood and have the best relationships. And this is from a very Buddhist perspective mm -hmm. that is suggesting that the in the Buddhist philosophy, suffering comes from rejection of what is. So when you're sitting here all day saying, oh, I wish I wasn't doing this. I wish I didn't have this grand deadline. I wish my kid wasn't doing, doing this. I wish my husband was doing this. That's what Buddhists believe create the suffering versus I am just accepting that my reality is my reality. And yes, it, it, I'm acknowledging it is difficult right now. And that's okay. I'm not fighting it in any way. And so my new analyses are showing that acceptance of self might also be a stress buffer allowing yourself to respond to these negative emotions potentially in an easier, gentler way that doesn't have that intense biological damage that ruminative thinking or other forms of maladaptive mm -hmm. thinking um, might actually cause on yourself. Yeah, I, I really like that. That's a really good way of also bringing in, you know, once the stressor occurs, you know, the, co the, the your response to that is really important. I think that's something we haven't really talked too much about. You know, resiliency is a really interesting topic, but the way that individuals cope with stressors varies so drastically uh, from stressor to stressor. Yes. And, you know, from the same stressor, uh, people will respond in, in <laughs> a plethora of ways. So it's really cool that self-acceptance mm -hmm. appears to be, you know, safeguarding them against these biological outcomes, these negative biological outcomes. Mm -hmm. Really cool. Mm -hmm. So so mm -hmm. I guess one little bit that we could, I guess, just, I know it's really not that much to develop, but I mean, coping with stress, what are there certain types of coping strategies aside from self-acceptance that have just been shown to kind of be more, mal you said maladaptive, and I uh, that's the terms that we often use for things like rumination, um, you know, ruminating and, and thinking mm -hmm. on things in a cyclical, repetitive manner. But are there, are there certain types of coping strategies that are just usually maladaptive or is there always, you know, a little bit of both? Like, is it could be good or it could be bad in certain situations? Well, I think, yeah, you brought up the primary psychological one, which is the ruminative thought, where you're just constantly replaying the negative thoughts around an event in an unhelpful mm -hmm. way. That's really different than processing the experience. We're actually integrating the difficult experience into your worldview, right. or you're, you're changing the way you experience the the stressor to integrate it into an existing worldview. So there's kind of two, you can either change your worldview or you can change your perspective of the event in order to fit into your worldview. Um, and that's different than ruminating, which is just unproductive thought. The, the other major category is behavioral. So are you doing behaviors that are not 
uh, helpful physics. Right. So you're you're becoming really sedentary. You go and sit and watch TV. Then your sleep is messed up because you're watching TV till two a.m. Mm-hmm. Then you're sleeping in the next day. Then you're not exercising. Then you're having soda to keep yourself awake. And then you're eating more sugary foods because you're really right. really really tired. So that kind of cyclical. Yeah, like behaviors. smoking and drinking yeah. in response to every stressor kind of yeah. thing too. Would that, would that fall on that too? Yeah, and I think yeah, and I th- and I think zoning out now is the new like smoking maybe, you know, our grandparents' <laughs> yeah. generation and now binging on screen time. Okay, yeah, and it's so disruptive for two primary reasons: one, your sleep; mm. second, your social relationships and connection. So instead of now going and chatting with a friend or um, debriefing with your family members, you're just tuning, you're just turning directly to your, your right. screens and really disconnecting uh, the moments that you have to share and to process the stressful experience with um, a supportive yeah. So binge, So binge watching The Office is the equivalent of smoking these days. <laughs> I'm, not putting, <laughs> I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. <laughs> Clearly that's my own statement. But uh, I, I think yeah, I really do like that perspective, Alexandra, is the, you know, that you know disengaging is you know the new negative or maladaptive coping strategy and i can i can definitely see that uh anecdotally of course in, in my friends and families you know when people are having a hard time or, or trying to ma- manage stress that they, they don't feel they're capable of managing uh they can't they will turn to the screen or just you know watch you know endless amounts of tv or netflix yeah i think that's true and then and then the problem with that is yeah it's okay people would argue well it's not always terrible well no but the, the problem with it is the longevity like how long you yeah. do it for I mean, if you look at, you know, if you have one of those screen time timers <laughs> on your phone, it's like, oh, like, you were on your phone for four oh, hours today. Oh, they're so today. sad. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was all day. I mean, I guess I was responding to some email on my phone. But it's, so, it's insane just how you don't even realize mm. um, how much you're on your phone. And by the way, then now add on how much I'm on my computer. And that's just a lot of time in front of yeah. the screen. Yeah, certainly, uh, certainly. Really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, just one. Uh, sorry, yeah. do, I want to get. I want to do myths and misconceptions before we let Alexander go. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was just going to say, let's wrap it up with some myths and misconceptions. Yeah. Do you? Ha- I, I'm sure you probably have some related to stress, Alexandra. Okay. Number one myth is all stress is bad. Mm. In fact, there is an entire body of work. Um, one of my mentors and colleagues now, Wendy Barry Mendez has a great series of studies looking at the way in which you appraise a str- an acute stressor influences whether your body handles it in a way that's healthy or unhealthy. And what this looks like is that you can perceive a acute stressor like giving a speech in a way that your body either interprets as a threat, like a physical threat, or as a challenge for you to overcome. So the best way to think about this is if you think about an Olympic athlete. I, I actually usually use Venus Williams as my example. Awesome. Yeah. So when Venus Williams walks out onto that tennis court, she is not thinking, oh, okay, here's everybody in the audience. Like they're, they're evaluating how I'm gonna do. And no, she walks out there saying, this is my chance to show everybody that I am the number one tennis player in the world. That's what I'm gonna do yeah. today. That switch in those two different inner dialogues I just gave, is, the first one was a threat where I feel threatened either socially or physically by the circumstance, or number two is I feel challenged. Like it's a challenge I know I can overcome. And what lab studies have shown is that when you take the challenge versus the threat mindset, your body actually responds physiologically in a more advantageous way because the blood flow, your your 
vessels vasodilate so that there's more blood and oxygen reaching your brain and you actually perform better on the tasks at hand. And they've done this with athletes. They've done this with students taking the GRE. They've done this with people giving a speech. You actually perform better if you have that challenge mindset and the challenge physiological profile that goes with that challenge mindset. Awesome. That's really cool. I really like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Isn't that cool? So next time you're sitting there, you've got some mm -hmm. overwhelming or seemingly overwhelming task that you have to deal with. Change that attitude. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge now and you're going to conquer it and, and presumably you'll be that much better for it. Really cool. Yep. That's exactly. amazing. Okay. I love it. Yeah. So, so that's a sick, uh, misconception, uh, really cool. I was not going to say sick because we've been talking about negative health outcomes all day. Um, but, uh, I know you've got more. So if you have any more that you want to do quickly, I'm, I'm all ears. Oh, that's my best one. Okay. Wait, let me think. Um, okay. Okay. Here's another one I'm really into awesome. right now. Um, okay. So there's this new theory that came out, um, by Broshot and Fair and, they call it the GUTS model, the generalized unsafety theory of stress. And what their perspective is, is saying that we have to stop thinking about stressors as, okay, you're going about your day and then something stressful happens. You have this stress arousal and then now you go back to your baseline. What they argue is that actually we're all always on high stress alert. So your physiology is always ready to respond. And that in fact, what we need to be doing is creating more rituals and moments of our day and physical spaces that can make us feel safe. Mm. Because it's the people who are able to spend more time in that reduced arousal, which you can only get to when you feel safe. Those are the people whose bodies actually have time to heal and recover. Wow. <laughs> That's really interesting. That's like yeah. I'm get, we're getting all the fre like yeah. fresh off the press, like new misconceptions that are, yeah. have been like present throughout. But these are like new findings that are kind of questioning what we've been always just assuming is the way stress works. Exactly. Okay. Hell final yeah. one. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, okay, I texted my friend before who was a, a cognitive neuroscientist before this, and I was like, "Is this true? If I say this on this podcast?" And she said, "Yeah." <laughs> well, okay. I read this really cool thing that is just blowing my mind right now, which is that in from your autonomic nervous system, 80% of the nerve fibers are afferent fibers, meaning they go from the body up to the brain. Why I'm so mind blown about this is because we have spent our entire field's history focused on how the brain, the mind influences yeah. the body. So I. I perceive that something's stressful and then a signal goes down into my body and tells it how to respond. And, but if 80% of our nerve fibers are actually getting information from signals from the body, it's actually that most of what we should be studying and caring about is what environmental factors are giving, is giving our body information that then is taken up to the brain. And we as psychological scientists who study stress have really not brought in these contextual factors, these environmental factors into our research that we need to be while you're going through a stressor to understand how our brain is perceiving and responding to that stressor. Yes, I love that. I That fits so <laughs> perfectly. Uh, you, you've stated it so eloquently. It is exactly the way I've been thinking about things and trying to start thinking about things in my own research. And you've just absolutely hit the nail on the head. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just gonna. Wait, yeah, I'm just working. gonna. Drake, you're gonna have to cut that piece out for me. 
I'll just throw it on my phone. Every time somebody asks me something, I'll just play that. <laughs> I don't need to do any explanation. Happy to do that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It, it's it's a it's a really interesting uh, factoid and just like just approach to looking at literature uh, and addressing that mind body connection that you opened up with today. You know, talking about the, the mind body connection and you know thinking about it in a different way. Where the body can be feeding the mind different things as well. Yeah, and how, how critical that is yeah. for, for health and well-being. Uh, Alexander, thank you for joining us on the program. Uh, is there anybody that we should, uh, that you'd like to take a moment to shout out to? Oh, the Stress <laughs> Measurement <laughs> Network. Yeah, you work hard. Everybody check out our website, Stress Measurement Network. Just Google it and you'll find our link. Even better, uh, head over to brainbuzzpodcast.com. Find this episode. There we'll have a link to that. Uh, so you can just follow it straight there. No Googling required. Certainly, you know, brainbuzzpodcast.com. Uh, that you can also get in touch with us. Uh, find other episodes if you've enjoyed this one. Uh, leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Let us know what you've thought. Um, and of course, share this with your friends. So uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.